welcome to the Plenty of Gas podcast, the podcast with plenty of great Australian stories. I'm your host Luke Sutton and today's story is entitled Murder at Bruce Rock. What really happened? But before we get into today's story, I thought I'd ask you a question which I'll answer at the end of the podcast. And my question for you today is this. Why is there a kangaroo and an emu on the Australian coat of arms? And I'll make it multiple choice. Is it A, because of the way in which both animals travel? Is it B, because they are Australia's most common animals? Is it C, because they are Australia's tallest animals? Or is it D, because they are Australian animals which are found in every state and territory? As I said, I'll answer that at the end of the podcast. But now, time for today's story. Now this is a very unique murder mystery, as it is not one of those whodunits, but more of a why done it. As soon as I discovered this rarely known story, I couldn't help but think what a wonderful and interesting movie it would make. Our story begins in 1930, in the heart of Western Australia's farming land, just south of Bruce Rock, about six kilometres from a tiny settlement known as Ardarf, on a farm property owned by a Mr John Scott Ree. Now just after 3pm on December 30th, while he was busy harvesting his paddock, he happened to notice from a distance his 30-year-old neighbour, Vidda James McCaskill running towards him, carrying something in his arms which he was unable to make out as it was covered by a towel. As Vidda practically stood abreast from John, who was by now slightly alarmed, he lifted up the edge of the towel to reveal the dead body of a small child. It was his eight-month-old son. Vida then collapsed at John's feet and began to cry hysterically. They're all dead. All of them. They're all dead. My poor child. My poor baby. Completely stunned, John asked, What happened, Vida? Eventually, the reply was given, That farmhand of mine, Halbert, has murdered my wife killed my child and hanged himself. John said, Are you sure your wife and Halbert are dead? Vita responded, Yes, she has been cut open with an axe. He then asked John if he would mind contacting the police for him and then come back to his farm so he could do something about the whole situation. John complied by unharnessing the horses and taking them back to the stables. On the way, he met another neighbour, William Meredith, who agreed to go to Ardaf with him and informed the police stationed at Bruce Rock by telephone. Meanwhile, Vidder went home to await either the police or his two neighbours. After the police were informed, John and Meredith made their way to Vidder's house which was situated on a 900-acre property. There they found the distraught man wandering around outside, still carrying his baby in his arms. As if this day was not strange enough, the abnormality of it all was just about to begin, when John caught sight of 18-year-old Halbert lying in the front doorway of the veranda with a broken piece of rope around his neck 
and another piece of broken rope hanging from a beam. John then asked Vita, where's your wife? Vita merely replied silently by gesturing with his head in the direction of the bedroom. John ventured inside and found one of the most horrific scenes he had ever seen. Blood was everywhere. Vita's wife Trina, who was 28 years of age, was laying on the bed, partly covered with a bedsheet, with a bloody axe lying nearby. John quickly went back outside and quizzed Vita for more information as to what actually happened. Vita began to relate the whole lead-up of events before the tragedy. It all started to go wrong when Halbert was given notice and was told that he needed to leave, but that he would at least be given to the end of the day to finish what work he was doing. In a small burst of anger, Halbert got up and responded, You'll be sorry for this. Vida no longer trusted the boy after he made that comment, and began to watch him closely throughout the day, in case he intended to cause some sort of mischief. After lunch, he saw Halbert go down to the paddock to sow some wheat bags. Later, he saw Halbert make his way to another end of the paddock. Not soon then after, he lost sight of him, and thought that he might have gone into the stables. Not wanting to venture in, just in case Halbert was lying around waiting to take him by surprise, he decided to return to the house instead. That's when he discovered Halbert's body swinging from the veranda. Vida grabbed his knife and cut the boy down. After trying to bring him back to life a few times, but failing, that's when he went inside the house and found his wife and child dead in the bedroom. John and Meredith both queried as to why he had given Halbert notice to leave. Victor claimed that numerous amounts of times the boy had a disgusting habit of picking his nose in front of his wife, especially in the kitchen. The wife complained to Victor several times that he needed to do something about it. So he warned Halbert that if he caught him doing it again, then it would cost him his job. Regardless of the number of warnings given, Halbert did it again. So Vita was left with no other choice. He had to let Halbert go. The only reason why Halbert would lash out at Trina, as far as Vita knows, is because he knew that she was the one that made the original complaint. But other than that, he is at a complete loss about the whole situation. John and Meredith realised by now that it would be a good idea to get the distraught Vita away from the murder scene completely. They persuaded him to go to Thomas Blackwell's house, another neighbour, and to wait there. Just before 5pm, Constable Walter Williams, Servetus Bruce, Clerk of Courts, and a Dr Malcolm Bell had arrived to investigate. The informing phone call they had received from John back at Bruce Rock still in no way prepared them for the ferocious scene which now lay before them. All three men began to make an earnest examination of the crime scenes. The constable first made his way to Thomas Blackwell's house to interview Vita, 
but he was too far in a state of shock to respond properly to any questioning. Instead, the constable satisfied himself by getting what information he could from John and Meredith, the very next ones to witness the scene. He then began to search the premises himself to find anything which he could deem as evidence. Meanwhile, Dr. Bell examined the victims, and his findings completely agreed with the account given that Trina and Robin were axed to death by the murder weapon found in the bedroom. He also agreed with the account given that Halbert had died as a result of strangulation. All three men seemed to be in agreement that it was a simple case of a double murder and a suicide. But then the daughter made a startling discovery. He noticed that where the rope had been cut, given the measurement of the remaining rope and the height of the man, then the rope would have been far too long for the victim to in fact hang himself. So long was the rope that Halbert would have been quite easily able to stand on solid ground. It was then also realised that the box, which Halbert was said to have been standing on and kick away, would have been simply too heavy for one man to move by himself. Further, after closer examination of the body, it became more apparent that the rope marks around Halbert's neck were completely circular, which is more consistent with somebody else strangling him than if it was semi-circular, which is more consistent with hangings. Plus, there was no splashed blood on Halbert's clothes, which does not make sense considering the nature of the violent crimes. Finally, Halbert's putrefaction and rigor mortis was 6 to 12 hours more advanced than Trina's and Robin's, which should not have been the case if Halbert, as the story given, hanged himself after the murders. With all the new evidence unfolding, it was now more apparent than ever, Vida had killed them all. They were now dealing with a triple murder. The constable decided it was best to re-question everybody in the area to see if they could not at least get some background information about Victor himself. When they questioned a local delivery man named Alfred Pryor, they had discovered that Alfred must have visited the crime scene when Victor was running through the paddock with his child in arms to meet John. Alfred described a completely different scene. Alfred had come to Victor's house to deliver the bread and newspaper. As he approached the house, he saw Victor's car, so he thought Victor was home. But as he came to the front of the house, he saw a man dead lying on the floor of the veranda. Alfred did not know this man. He called out for Victor, but there was no answer. He also saw an axe lying on the kitchen table, so he became a bit jittery about the whole experience and left for Ardath. However, upon arriving at Ardath, he discovered that the police had already been informed about the dead body. The big revelation to Alfred's testimony is that he examined the body on the veranda quite closely to ascertain that the man was in fact dead. He was so close that he noticed that the man was clean-shaven and extremely blue in the face. However, when asked was there any rope around his neck, 
Alfred replied, no. There was definitely no rope around the man's neck when he was there, neither was there any rope hanging from one of the beams on the veranda. When the doctor had finished examining the bodies, John and Meredith were asked to load all the bodies onto Meredith's truck and transport them over to Bruce Rock. When all the bodies were lifted, all of them noted that Halbert's body was quite stiff, compared to Trina's and the baby's, which were still very limp. All now left the murder site for Bruce Rock. Later that evening, at about 11pm, Vita had visited the police station to inquire if his mother had arrived from Perth. The constable informed Vita that as soon as she did, then he would personally escort her out to the farm, so it would be best if he went home and waited for her there. However, Vita went back to Thomas Blackwell's farm and stayed the night there and continued to discuss the tragedy with Thomas into the early hours of the morning. During their discussion, some very strange remarks were made by Vita. Vita claimed that Halbert had been injured by one of Vita's cows and was making all these inquiries into workers' compensation. Both Vida and Halbert were aware that the premium under the workers' compensation had elapsed. No doubt in Vita's mind, Halbert must have killed his wife and then stolen her insurance policy to try and collect that money, as Vida had tried to find it recently, but could not. Thomas replied simply that if that was true, then Halbert was making no sense by hanging himself after. Vita was silent for a little while, but then continued to insist to Thomas that because Trina was heavily insured, Halbert must have been planning this for that reason, and that he must have been doing this for at least three weeks, because even some dynamite and detonators were missing from his farm around that time too. The next morning, Thomas and Vita returned to the murder scene. At some point, Vita went to the corner of the kitchen and found the missing dynamite and detonators. No doubt, claimed Vita, Halbert intended to blow up the entire house. Thomas, finding Vita to be a bit eccentric by now, took the explosives from him and later hid them under a water tank where Vita would be unable to find them. Meredith then visited the McCaskill farm between 10.30 and 11am. When he arrived, he found Vita searching around the area where Halbert's body was, looking for something. When Vita saw Meredith approaching, he collapsed into his neighbour's arms, crying, I want my mother, I want my mother, that is all I want. Eventually, Vita once again composed himself and asked Meredith if he minded going into the house and getting a case of papers for him. Then, nearly in the same breath, he snapped, No, leave everything. Vita then got into his car and drove off in the direction of Bruce Rock. Upon arriving into town, Vita met up again with Constable Williams. He again asked if his mother had arrived. He was now informed that she in fact had, and that she and her daughter was resting up in a room in the local hotel. 
The constable requested that Vita first make a statement at the courthouse, since they were, in fact, standing just outside of it, and then he will take him to see his mother. However, Vita was quite adamant to see his mother first, and then he would make a full statement. The constable agreed, and took him to see his mother and his sister. Again, Vita was asked if he would mind now making a statement. Vita assured the constable that after he had spent a bit of time with his mother, he would then go and make a full statement. The constable then requested to the mother in private not to let her son out of her sight. Later, at about 1.30pm, the constable was informed that some had witnessed Vita get into his car and leave town. The constable quickly returned to the mother, who was under the impression that Vita was still in the toilet. But such was not the case. Vita had, in fact, skipped town, and was heading back towards his farm. The constable gained chase in another vehicle, accompanied by Detective Sergeant Muller, who had been sent from Perth to also help investigate the case. They were hoping to catch up to Vita and pull out in front of him. Upon reaching the farm, however, they noticed Vita's car was already there, near a haystack. Then they witnessed a magnificent cloud of dust. When they caught up to the site, they discovered pieces of Vita hundreds of metres away from where Vita's main body laid. Meredith also came from his farm to investigate the explosion, and witnessed the gruesome aftermath of Victor's body with no head, no shoulders, and no arms. After committing another examination of the new crime scene, it was concluded that Victor must have hidden another stick of dynamite in one of the haystacks. After again finding it, he now placed the stick of dynamite using his right hand, since they could not find that one, inside his mouth with the fuse pointing outwards, and let it. On January the 20th, the official finishing court's verdict on the matter was that William Frederick Francis Halbert was strangled by Victor McCaskill on December 30, 1930, and that Eva Trina McCaskill and Robin Victor McCaskill was also killed by axe wounds inflicted by Victor McCaskill on that same day and that Victor McCaskill had committed suicide on December 31 using a stick of dynamite while being in a state of an unsound mind. Though Victor was declared insane, no official medical examination could be done on Victor's brain as it was blown to pieces. Still the lingering question here is why? What was the motive? Most websites would have you believe that it was a simple matter of financial gain and no other reason. While it is true that certain facts do support financial gain and that it played a part in being a motive, to limit Victor's motive to that and not take into consideration any other factors seems to be a bit naive and closed-minded. Granted, it was discovered that the sum of $500 had been transferred from Trina's bank account into her husband's account, which was practically always devoid of funds before. 
Further investigations revealed that Halbert had been paid nothing in wages for the last eight months and was looking forward to collecting them and taking a holiday in a few weeks' time when his employment was naturally to expire. This was all revealed in Halbert's letters to his mother, who he constantly corresponded with for the three years he had not seen her. I guess we can also assume that these letters of Halbert did not surface any other hidden intentions for being a motive. For example, a secret romance with Victor's wife Trina, or a growing personality clash with Victor, which Halbert was aware of. Though these letters don't include such details, it does not mean that they may not have existed. Most compelling, though, was the fact that Vida had taken out a $4,000 insurance policy on his wife's life on October the 24th. Vida was the sole beneficiary of that policy, which was to be enforced for seven years. Vida had also taken out an insurance policy on his own life for $1,000, the duration also being seven years, and the sole beneficiary being his wife but this was done earlier on October the 14th. Therefore, it is possible this earlier policy may have been taken out to encourage Trina to also have one. So with all the evidence pointing to financial gain, why not limit the motive to that fact? Because Vida was by no means poor. What debts he had were very small, and he had a great paying job as a government surveyor at Narogen. It also seems that he had a great love and respect for his wife for many years. So what made it diminish? His wife Trina, maiden name Lloyd, was born at Leonora and brought up in the household of an English aristocrat. She completed her training at Claremont College, which then allowed her to become a teacher at Narogen. This is where she met Vida, and they fell in love to the point where they were about to get married. However, due to unforeseen circumstances, she was required to transfer to Southdale School. Because of distance, their engagement was called off. Eventually, when she was later transferred again to Ardav, that's when their relationship resumed. Even during this period of separation, they seemed always to have been in love with each other. Some have concluded, therefore, that Vita may have felt compelled to kill his wife if she had in fact accidentally witnessed the killing of Halbert. However, this explanation seems to fail to take into consideration the sheer viciousness of the crimes. Clearly the motive had to be passionate hatred and anger, or maybe the work of a madman. While others argue there was too much conscious planning by Vita and orchestrating of the scene to declare Vita insane. One final clue might be hidden in what was coined by police as a peculiar diary from Vida, which was found during the search of the house. In it, it showed that Vida had a specific fetish in his life for at least 10 years, the details which have never been made public. Maybe one day in future, that is to save Vida's diary or Halbert's letters, or even some crime scene photos still exist, Maybe they will shed more light on this what can only be described as a bizarre mystery. Whatever the case, just when you think you've worked it all out, remember also this one interesting fact. 
The box that Halbert was said to have stood on and jumped off was so heavy that it was unlikely to have been moved by one person. What really happened on that fateful day? I'll leave that for all you Hollywood producers to decide. Well, like me, I hope you enjoyed today's story about the murder at Bruce Rock. It's a story with an ending which just has this ability to blow one's mind away. I keep wondering what it would have been like to have been there. Just looking around for Vida would have been like searching for something needless in a haystack. Vida, who considered nose-picking to be wrong, but triple murder to be okay. Join me next week as I relate to you the most boring story I have ever heard. Now time to answer the question I left you with. And the question I gave you is, why is there a kangaroo and an emu on the Australian coat of arms? And out of all the multiple choice answers that I gave you, the correct answer is none of them. It must be highlighted that there is no official reason stated by the Australian government. If you were to research this question on the internet, however, you would constantly find a reference to the common stated belief that the animals were chosen to symbolise a nation moving forward as neither animal can move backwards easily and seldom rarely do. Their argument to support this concept is simply based on the fact that at the bottom of the first coat of arms, approved in 1908, is the motto Advance Australia. Though this motto was discontinued on the second coat of arms in 1912, still the hidden meaning of Advance Australia is carried by the shield supporters, the kangaroo and the emu. While this idea of a secret message in our coat of arms is novel, in truth, however, it is just highlighting a coincidence, and coincidence by itself does not prove intention. There are two problems to the idea that the kangaroo and emu was consciously intended to represent that Australia was advancing. First, the Australian coat of arms was actually designed from what is now known as the Bowman flag, created in 1806. This flag itself was inspired by Lord Nelson's victory at Trafalgar in 1805. The Battle of Trafalgar resulted with 27 British ships successfully defeating 33 French and Spanish ships at Cape Trafalgar. While the Franco-Spanish fleet lost 22 ships in battle, the British fleet lost none. This was a marked event for British Australasian colonists and was celebrated by one and all. One such Australian to celebrate was John Bowman, who designed and made a flag and flew it on his property. This flag carried the motto, Unity, and England expects that every man will do his duty. These were said to be the made statements at the commencement of the Battle of Trafalgar. How was unity on the flag symbolised? It was done by the use of a composite picture. On the flag was a Norman shield, and inside the shield was a picture of an English rose, a Irish shamrock, and a Scottish thistle, which were all heritage icons of the British colonists. Australia on the flag was itself represented by the shield supporters, the kangaroo and the emu. This is the first known pictorial representation of a kangaroo and emu being used to symbolise Australia. 
but why had people already began to mainly use the kangaroo to represent Australia? In a nutshell, it was because of their isolation to the island of Australia. Until 1770, kangaroos were in fact unknown to the rest of the world. Europeans first recognised and scientifically studied the animal when as a result of an error in navigation, Captain Cook's ship, the Endeavour, became trapped in the northeastern reeves of Australia. A party was sent to explore the land and came back with stories of grey, long-tailed creatures which leapt about on their hind legs. This party was again dispatched and over the course of many days, the crew chased fruitlessly one kangaroo after another. Finally, a large kangaroo was shot dead. On their return to the ship, Joseph Banks, the naturalist on the endeavour, commissioned George Stubbs to paint a portrait of the kangaroo specimen. A number of sketches and vivid descriptions were made. Its skin was also removed so that it could be taken back to England for further study. When the official account of the voyage was published in 1773, it was illustrated with an engraving of Stubbs' kangaroo. From that time on, the kangaroo quickly came to symbolise the Australian continent, appearing in exhibitions, collections, art and printed works across Europe. It is interesting to note, however, that prior to this, for thousands of years, Australian Aborigines have also greatly valued the kangaroo. Often they would mimic such creatures in their ceremonies around the campfire. Aborigines were not noted for mimicking, let's say, koalas, or doing a fairy penguin dance. It should then come to no surprise that the Europeans would also develop a fascination with this creature known as a kangaroo, and because of its uniqueness, it began to represent the unique country in which it came from. The second problem with the notion that the kangaroo is used to represent an advancing Australia is really the hidden meaning behind the original motto of Advance Australia. The term Advanced Australia was used on and off from the 1820s. Because the Advanced Australia motto never really had any official status, it was readily used by all sorts of different groups during the colonial period, from Freemasons to even gold miners. However, by the late 1800s, the slogan Advanced Australia was largely used by nationalists, who were heavily pressing for the unification of all colonies against Chinese migration and other similar invasions. They were desperately plugging to see all non-whites, including Aborigines, excluded from the Australian society altogether. This is really what was meant by Advanced Australia. The Australian Natives Association, ANA, was one such nationalist group, which adopted the Advanced Australia arms as their own during this period. The ANA Society was exclusive to men born in Australia and provided sickness, medical and funeral cover for its members. It also advertised itself as the perfect base for a forward-looking, idealistic political movement. The ANA committed itself to the Federation of the Australian Colonies by providing much of the organisational and financial support for the Federation Leagues. Although ANA withdrew from political activity after Federation in 1901, the Federation kept the official motto for its coat of arms, and later detracted it in 1912, largely probably because of its racial undertones. 
So, with all this in mind, does it really seem logical to you that the kangaroo and emu was chosen to illustrate an advancing Australia, which has the hidden undertone of all non-whites being excluded from Australia? I guess I'll leave that for Pauline Hanson to decide. Well, that concludes today's podcast. If you want to email me a request or you have a question, or you would like to share some information about Bruce Rock or the kangaroo and the emu, you can do so. My email is plentyofgas, one word, at y7mail.com or kyzka at y7mail.com. Kizgurt being my nickname. Join me next week. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.